Kim Petresca, and this is about IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 80. I didn't look far to find my guest for this episode. It's my husband, Michael Tresca, who has been on my show twice before on episode 8 and episode 20. It's been more than two years since he's made an appearance, though, so I thought it was time. A little background about us. We found each other when we were in our early 20s and still in college. The twist was that I was living in Michigan and he was living in New York. We met over the internet, but this was well before the days of online dating. After knowing each other for some time, I hopped on a plane and flew to New York to meet him. I stayed for about a week and we decided on what our next steps would be. Several years later, that resulted in us being married in New Jersey and settling in Connecticut, where we still live today, 21 years later. Many people with IBD have concerns about finding a partner because of how difficult it is to live with these diseases. It's true, having a chronic illness does put relationships in a different light. On this episode, we focus on communication and how important it is right from the beginning of a relationship. Mike and I discuss how I first told him about my health challenges and how he responded. It turns out I remember it more vividly than he does. We then discuss a 20-year-old issue that occurred because he was a little more transparent about my illness with friends and co-workers than I was. I hope this episode gives you some insight into what it's like to have IBD as a part of your marriage and a jumping off point to have similar discussions with the people in your life. Stay to the end for Mike's tips on how to be a better partner to someone who lives with IBD. So have you listened to my last episode yet? Yes. (laughs) That's good since it didn't come out too long ago. Here's the thing. I asked her a question that I've never really thought about a lot in regards to my own life. She was diagnosed when she was 11, Jordan Diddy, episode 79. And I asked her, how did she tell people? She was only 11 years old. And I just can't imagine how you would deal with that at that age. And she told me that basically she didn't tell anyone. There was only one person that she told. And she really didn't know what other people knew. Her parents may have dealt with it. but people didn't directly discuss it with her. And it made me start to remember I was a few years older at my diagnosis. I was 16. But I didn't sit people down and talk with them about things. Obviously, my friends were constantly in and out of the hospital. You know, there was always somebody in my hospital room. But I don't remember having an actual conversation with anyone where... I looked at them and said the words, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. The only difference is when I told you. And I say told, even though I didn't actually tell you, I believe I emailed you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you remember receiving this email from me? Vaguely. Yeah. Really? Vaguely. Yeah, it wasn't a big moment. So I don't know if there was something I sort of knew what was up, but I I didn't seem like a giant revelation to me when it happened. So I went to the computer lab in Holmes Hall, went to send you an email because we had met over the internet and were not 
obviously together. And that was a large part of our communication was either on the phone or email or we would get together on the different games that we played. Mm -hmm. So I remember going into this computer lab and sitting down to write this email to you because I think it was getting to the point where I was going to end it with the person that I was seeing. I don't think you were seeing anyone at the time where I wasn't aware if you were. So we were getting to the point where we were going to have to figure out whether or not we were going to be able to meet physically and then how we were going to figure all the rest of that out, being that we were living in two different states and hadn't finished school and, you know, everything else that goes along with that. So I guess I just really wanted to make sure that you understood what my challenges were before we were actually together in the same space and you realized that what my physical realities were. Mm -hmm. I think it was probably, and it may still be, like the first and only time that I sat down to let someone that I was involved with know what was going on. And I don't remember specifically what I wrote, but I think I wrote what I understood to be true at the time, which is vastly different than what it is now. But at the time, I knew that I had a lifelong condition, that I was better than I used to be, but it wasn't getting any better from there, and that I didn't know what it would look like as far as my future prospects in terms of a career, in terms of having a family. I just couldn't tell you much of anything except what I knew to be true of the past five or six years of living with ulcerative colitis. And so I send off this email. And I don't remember like, you know, after that, like what the day was like after that or whatever. But I do remember very distinctly the computer lab sending you this email. And you wrote me back whenever it was that you wrote me back. And I picked it up later. Um, you say you don't really remember what I wrote to you, but do you remember what you wrote to me? Not, not specifically other than, um, I think in a lot of ways we didn't think it was a, it's funny because you made that comment where it was like what we understood at the time. So I thought at the time it, I just took it at face value as just being another part of sort of your life and our life. And it didn't, I don't think it phased me. I don't remember what I said though. No, I don't. I, you can correct me if I'm wrong. If, if you remember how this went. I believe that you wrote me back and essentially you were kind of like, well, none of this really matters. And you essentially went on to describe a, a coelacanth. Am I saying that right? I should know. Mm-hmm. And you said, here was this thing that people thought was extinct. And lo and behold, they go and find one one day. And you're my coelacanth. And it doesn't really matter, like all of these other things. Mm-hmm. We'll figure it out, you know. And it was an interesting response. First of all, I had no idea how you were going to respond. Because I had had literally almost no experience with telling anyone the realities of my 
disease, if they were around me, they might have seen it. But I certainly didn't describe it. And I don't think I'd ever told anyone that I was dating. No, I'll take that back. I did try one time <laughs> telling someone that I was dating about my situation. And I don't know why, because this was like a summer boyfriend. You know, this was not going to be um, something that was serious. So I, I literally have no idea why I was trying to tell him anything. It kind of didn't matter. And he asked me a lot of really bizarre questions. And I was like, okay, so definitely when summer's done, I'm going to go back to school and we're done because this was fun, but no thanks. Yeah. So your response was surprising. Now, on the other hand, it wasn't like this was an easy thing for us to try to be together. We had to do a lot of things in order to make it work. I guess I give a lot of advice and write a lot of articles and things about how you can talk to people about your disease. And I certainly do a lot more of it now. But interpersonally, it just sometimes it just doesn't come up. You know, I was all in, obviously. I think my answer is consistent, although it sounds weird because I don't remember actually writing all that. But um, I think it still applied, which was sort of I knew you sort of as a person on the internet before we had been together. So there wasn't a lot of preconceived notions of like, how is this going to affect how, how we date? Because we didn't have any of that yet. So I feel like we had done a lot of getting to know each other sort of by communication. And whatever it was, I think it was part of, you know, I was just going to accept that because that was who you were. And it didn't phase me at all. If anything, what we learned later was sort of some of the things we just took for granted um, weren't the way we thought they were. So I sometimes blame myself because I just, I sort of took it all unquestioningly and there's, that's not always great either. <laughs> um, and over time, I think we, we sort of re-examined some of that. But for me, it was just, that's part of who you are. It is funny to, though, to talk about this and think about how we went from two kids, kids, even though we were in our 20s, uh, on different parts of the nation to now we here have a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old, which is just crazy to think that we went through all that and came out the other side, um, married for as long as we have. So I think that's really uh, astonishing because I can only imagine people who, there are many couples who go through this and to think what challenges we, they have to face and, you know, that we had to face just ulcerative colitis being just one of them. Do you remember work, the, the, the fabulous work incident where it came up? Which, which one? <laughs> where you Give were me being a time introduced frame a year. Uh, when I was a consultant and we introduced everyone and we were talking about and you made sort of a joke about Somebody made a joke. It wasn't necessarily you about, oh, maybe your kids will be this way. And one of the contractors I work with said, I thought you said you couldn't have kids. Actually blurted that out at the dinner table. You know what? That's coming back to me, but I don't remember where we were. Was it a holiday party yes. or this, something? This is cathartic because it's haunted me for 20 years. Because <laughs> um, the look you gave me burned into my soul. <laughs> So I'm glad it's nice to hear that it doesn't 
uh, it didn't stick as horrifying I... as it was for me because you know this. So this is the the discussion point, right? Which is on the one hand, I had brought that up in the context of I'm not going to talk about it a lot. It's not. It's sort of a sensitive issue. On the other hand, I think people in social settings didn't know how to approach it in any delicate slash indelicate way. So it sort of came out and it was one of those like awful, awkward moments because it, frankly, it wasn't their business, but it was one of those things where when I would try to explain our situation, it just naturally, that was part of the speech. Were we even married? No, we weren't even no. married at the time. No. I only remember the incident. Okay. I do. I do remember oh, no. that. No, I remember. The trauma's, who, the trauma's being I know. real. I, I remember who said it. Mm -hmm. I don't think it really wounded me except that it was apparent that this was a person that you were confiding in and I didn't realize how much you were confiding in him. And so, and so here, well, this is good. We'll have this out on, on the podcast, but what, <laughs> what was happening was I didn't, I, I didn't think of it as confiding because that was part of my speech on how I talked about us and, and your situation. It so, was part of your elevator speech, but correct. why did you need to tell anyone about our situation? We weren't even married at the time. Um, Because people would talk about kids and I'd be like, we don't know. It's a serious thing. Don't make jokes. That was sort of my feeling. So you were trying to protect me. Correct. And this dude, whose yeah. who's face is now, I can remember, <laughs> decided to just kablam, lay yes. it all out. Okay. Yes. Okay. People had alcohol well, for I'm, sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And the reason why I remember it is I do remember that now that you bring it up. Um, I'm. It's not like I've ever sat down and really thought about that. I don't even know if we had a discussion about it. I remember it because I was, okay, this would have been a holiday party. So it would have been um, in 1998. I was not well. Mm-hmm. And I was on a lot of prednisone, and you could tell by looking at my face. Mm -hmm. So I was very self-conscious, and my face looked different, and there was no way to hide it. And then all of a sudden, it was like people knew the thing that I moved away from and didn't discuss with anyone. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily about having kids, because I think I almost didn't let myself think about that too much. I was too sick. We were too young and we didn't have any money and I was going to have to pay for this surgery. <laughs> so, you know, having children was far and away from all of that. So I think it was more that here was a person that I considered to be tangential to our lives who clearly knew things that I wasn't aware other people knew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that, well, that irreparably damaged the relationship with that guy. That was the end of that. <laughs> um, do, do you forgive me? For, for discussing it with other people? <laughs> yes. I mean, what's hilarious about it now is that I was very much a person who told others what they needed to know when they needed to know it. Therefore, no one at work knew of my challenges. I don't think even the people that we were meeting and that we were socializing with at that time knew anything. Right. It wasn't, I didn't bring it up. I didn't, I didn't discuss it. So 
what's funny about it now is that now I tell my story to anyone who will listen. Um, and have done so many times and in many places and on video and audio and written and in interview form. It's kind of funny to think about now, to think about how private I used to be about it. And 20 years later, there's very few aspects that haven't been dissected in a public forum. So am am I forgiven? (laughs) Yes. Thank you. I don't I mean, I don't know that there's really anything to forgive. It never bothered me in that in that way. Right. And and so one of the things that I think this is a, it's it's relevant to this discussion is I saw myself as your PR person in a lot of ways. We we had talked about this was a joke um way before. Well, this podcasting. is this continues to be the joke is that yeah. you're 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 PR. Yeah. Yeah. Um but so what happened was I did have a sort of an elevator speech which was completely crafted with no input from you that was sort of taking cues from you to sort of come up with this stuff. And, and pretty you can bet your bottom dollar after that, I left the other piece out about. But it was one of those things that I was learning how to talk about it to other people um, and what was personal and what was sort of off limits. And that was a harsh lesson to learn. And again, the person just blurted out because they were everybody was drunk. Um, and they were well, out of dinner. Well, I party. wasn't drunk. Let yeah. me tell you You were that. certainly not drunk enough. Um <laughs> But they, I don't even yeah. think I was. I don't even think I, I was drinking. Yeah. I was way too sick. Yeah, but yeah, he, right. yeah. but here's my question about that though. Why did you? Why did you have to have an elevator speech about my disease? Um, I think because I there were some. I think there were times we didn't do things, um, and I wanted to be able to explain. You know, this doesn't make sense right now, or we can't eat this, or that. There were certain things that I. I don't. If you ask me exactly what it was, I. It, but it, it sort of was a means of putting things in context. Um, I also think at some point surgery was on the table where we knew it might affect availability uh, of me. I, I don't know if it was at that job specifically, but I feel like it that was a discussion. Uh, well, actually, what happened was is that you left that job because you were in a brand new job yeah. in March of 99 when I had the first surgery. Because essentially, you had to sort of finesse your way to be able to be with me at the hospital for almost a week. Right. While all of that was going on. Right. And, and, you, I don't and know, you had just started that job. I don't know that we knew when that was going to be exactly until later. So I think <laughs> there was a lot of ground laying that I was trying to do to sort of give me the ability to sort of say, like, what I didn't want it to be is I got to go out all of a sudden and people were like, why? So I think there was a lot of... Me sort of saying, I just want to let everyone know what the situation was. But I mean, look, I was young. Uh, the workplace we were at was pretty stressful. And uh, one of the best way, I was pretty transparent, frankly. Um, so it was a very good defense because there was a lot of sort of skullduggery going on in, in the world of Skullduggery? Skull what? D- you heard me. You heard me. I used it. Did you just say skullduggery on my show? Yes. And I'm probably oh. the only, am I the only one? I hope so. Uh, well, yeah. Good. And, and you might not even be the only I'm one because only- I feel like I'm going to cut that. <laughs> you better not cut it. <laughs> I'm going to own what it. What does that mean, skullduggery? What, like, what do you mean by that? Like, I know what the word means, but what do you I mean think by that? A, there was a lot of, like, um, sort of backstabbing and a lot of sort of 
rumor-mongering, a lot of that stuff because people were jockeying for positions. So part of that for me was to be transparent. And that made it much tougher for people to sort of make things up. But right. did people come to you and ask you about me? That's what I'm saying. Like, like Yeah, someone, you were a mystery for a long time because they hadn't met you. Everybody else, some of their spouses worked with them or they were, you know, coming to work. So for a long time, you were a mystery. It was a big deal when you showed up. Like, it was like a huge... Uh, I don't even know what the phrase was. It was like a huge welcoming ceremony where it was like, oh, here is the, the mystery woman that, you know, Mike's dating. And, and a lot of people were like, because I was obviously and, and still am a character. So there was a little bit like, what, who could possibly date this guy? And what, oh what is that like? So, yeah. Oh so a lot of this was to, to sort of put on the table who I was and also, you know, make it make sense, hopefully make sense. Uh, who you were in the background. Because, again, they didn't know you. Um, and well, then it went horribly awry the first time they met you. Yeah, so but, you good. know, the, the hilarious thing about this is that my response to the first 10 years or so with my disease was to not tell anyone anything. Mm -hmm. And your response, after knowing me for three or four years, was to basically tell people everything. Yeah. I think that it continues to this day. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's correct. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I think, you, I think you summed it up perfectly. I, I, I think that's, that's in a nutshell. That's, that's our relationship, and that's why you're PR, and I am tech support. That's 100%. <laughs> and operations, too. And it's operations. Tech support is minimizing operations, right. really. Is and... Finance and yes. you know a lot yeah. of other things, yeah. but yeah, oh that's so funny. Well, I feel better. This is already worth it. I feel like we've, <laughs> we've we've overcome something that's been haunting me for twenty plus years. You ever think about anything like that? Don't don't you ever? Because I feel like we talk about just like everything, but like don't you ever? Didn't you ever get to a point where you thought about bringing that up and? dealing with it or was it the, was it the type of thing where it just goes on for so long that you're like well i can't the bring that look up now. you gave me wounded me okay to but my to be soul. fair that's just but that's just my look like that's just my face no i know your face pretty well i was fairly true i was mad at myself i mean i wasn't mad at you in any way i i felt it was unforgivable because i didn't understand obviously right was the sensitivity of it and again it's so funny here we are <laughs> 20 years later we're talking on a podcast about it which is the least personal and private <laughs> way you could discuss it. So it's clear we've come a long way. But yeah, it was one of those things where it was like I had miscalculated. I had not, con I hadn't, in my attempt to protect you, I had inadvertently been made it more vulnerable, I think. So it was one of those things that, um, you know, I, it was more a harsh lesson for me to change how I thought about some pieces of how we talked about. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. Why, other than the idea of wanting to protect a person that you love, why did you feel the need to protect me? I don't feel like you had a lot of people on your side um, advocating, full stop. Mm -hmm. And because we had moved and we were in a different environment and a lot of that, so I felt it was my responsibility. That simple. And, and certainly that... When we were in the hospital, that was really came <laughs> home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you were my voice in the hospital. 
Yeah. You know, you, you can do a lot for yourself, but well, I mean, I'm a pain in the ass anyway. Point, now put me in a hospital setting. It was really interesting to see how little voice and, and I'm not talking, you know, big picture stuff. I'm talking about like talking to a nurse, talking to someone at the front desk um, because it gets drowned out by everybody else. Oh, yeah. And I'm not. A squeaky wheel, really. Or I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's be honest. <laughs> I wasn't You then. were not then, yes. I was yeah. not then. Yeah. I had been hospitalized so many times for so long that I kind of knew the ebb and the flow of things, but surgery was new. Being on pain medications was new. Having things like a drain was new. And even though I was exceptionally well prepared by my team, no one can explain to you in a way that lived experience shows you. So there were things that we were dealing with in the moment that no one could have told you it was going to go that way. So you being there and, you know, being able to, I mean, I just literally remember when I was finally cleared to have clear liquids, they heard bowel sounds. So, okay, you can have clear liquids now. And they weren't bringing them and they weren't bringing them and they weren't bringing them. And it wasn't mealtime. That was the problem. It wasn't mealtime at all. But we were like, somebody bring some jello, like literally some jello, some broth, some something. Otherwise, I'm gonna have to go all night, you know, and not have anything to eat. And then that's going to delay my recovery and going home and, and everything. And I remember, I don't, I don't even know how many times you went and bothered somebody about getting me a tray of clear liquids. Yeah. I think the tray of clear liquids was when I finally got to the point where I was like, well, I'm just going to stay here. Because <laughs> I, would, I would go to the desk, ask, and they'd say, okay, and then I'd leave. And then what would happen, of course, is there'd be a shift change or whatever. People would be moving around, so it wouldn't be the same person. And after I talked, I think three times, I basically like, I'm not leaving. I'm just going to hang out here. And that made everybody super uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> And then you got the Jello. <laughs> I know. I remember that tray very well. I've eaten many meals in the hospital. <laughs> Don't remember a lot of them, quite frankly. That one I remember quite well. How would you give a person living with IBD hope about? Finding a long-term romantic partner. Do not let a moment in time define you uh, in such a way that you feel it's going to be forever because nothing is forever. No, even situations come and go, even if they're still physically the same. Um, so although it feels like it's going to be a long time and there, especially when you're in a, in a dark place, um, there's somebody for everybody. So we probably should have done this last year on our 20th. I know. I was like, this is really intense. And why are we doing it on our 21st anniversary? <laughs> it feels like it should be a 20th. Right. Oh, I don't know. It's just, um, I don't know why we didn't do an anniversary episode last year. I guess, well, last year, because we could go places, we actually took a fun anniversary trip. That's right. So... We weren't around. <laughs> we took two trips, really. Mm -hmm. We took a local trip. And then we decided to celebrate again when we went down to Florida for advances in IBD. That's right. 
I was sick again. <laughs> That's also right. <laughs> so I think I get more upset about my being ill during a special event than you do. I was drinking and eating great food. It was fine for me. <laughs> it was harder for you. Yeah. But then I get upset and mean. So. I was probably too drunk to <laughs> Well, happy 21st. Oh, happy 21st, baby. That's wonderful. Hopefully we we haven't horrified everybody who's trying to look for hope in being married for two decades plus. Um, well, I'll just cut all the weirdness. Yeah, That's the joy sure. of editing your own sure, show. Sure, it'll come through and I'll sound way more intelligent than I normally sound. Well, I'm not a miracle worker. <laughs> I mean... Way more than the wine makes me think I sound. <laughs> I've had, you know, I think I've been trained pretty well, but mm. um, there's a limit. <laughs> I think you're PR now. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> A relationship with someone who has IBD is going to have its ups and downs. It's not much different than any other relationship, but Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis can bring some unusual situations. That's why I'm offering advice on how you can work together to create a rewarding partnership. Tip one, know when to tell others about your partner's IBD. This is a tricky subject to navigate. First, check with your partner that it's okay to bring the subject up to others. You don't want to say the wrong thing. Most of the time, IBD will likely not come up, but there are times when it might be easy to explain, such as when there's a hospitalization. Be prepared for some off-the-wall questions, but remember that it's a chance to educate someone who might not know anything about IBD. Tip number two, be helpful during flare-ups. Flare-ups are going to happen, and when they do, you can be your partner's best advocate and helper. However, it might be hard to manage the household while your partner is recovering. Take a deep breath and be patient with yourself. Flare-ups don't last forever, and the sooner your partner can receive treatment and rest, the sooner they'll be on their way to recovery. Tip number three, be aware of potential body image issues. IBD brings so many insecurities and worries involving the body, including the ability to be attractive and physically intimate. Some of the things that can impact body image include fatigue, medication side effects, and weight loss or gain. The key to staying on top of these issues is to communicate about them, even when it might feel like an embarrassing subject. If the problems become too complex to deal with on your own, seek out professional help. Tip number four, create an emotional support network for yourself. IBD is complicated and difficult to manage. As the well partner, you're going to have challenges that are unique and for which your partner may not be able to offer any help. Connect with friends and family about your emotional needs and seek out other people who are partnered to someone who lives with IBD for support. Tip number five, take time for yourself. Everyone has their own way of dealing with stress, and it's important to nurture the hobbies and friendships that you enjoy, both with your partner and without them. Your identity goes beyond being a well partner, and you deserve the time and space to cultivate the things that you love. Hey, super listener. Special thanks to my husband, Michael Tresca, for sitting down with me over a glass of wine to record. The episode you just heard was not the episode I'd initially intended, but honestly, it probably turned out better in the end. 
One thing I want to call attention to is the discussion of women with IBD having children. When I was diagnosed, it was during the era when women were counseled against becoming pregnant, and I had to advocate for myself on that topic for many years. Today, I have two J-Pouch children, both born via vaginal delivery, and they are ridiculously healthy. Women with IBD can have healthy pregnancies and babies and do so all the time. If you're a mom with IBD or a mom of a child with IBD, be sure to connect with IBD Moms, which is a nonprofit that I founded with my friend and frequent traveling partner, Brooke Abbott of the Crazy Creole Mommy Chronicles. You will find us on all social media as IBD Moms and at IBDMoms.org. You can also follow my husband, who is a fiction novelist and content creator for tabletop role-playing games on all social media and on his Patreon as World of Wellstar. I will put all his information in the show notes. You will also find links on the episode 80 page on my site about IBD.com. And remember that you can also find me, Amber Tresca, on all social media as About IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. About IBD is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Matt Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. Okay. You expect me to edit that back into the rest of the episode? You better believe it. <laughs>